0: God cannot make us the object of His love without necessarily also making His eternal happiness parallel to ours. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the age of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here's our text. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, So our text begins with these two words, really this one word, but, and then followed by God. But God. Those are two of the most glorious words in Scripture. Scripture takes a turn here that's one of the most glorious and beautiful turns that it's going to take anywhere, cover to cover. This word, but, we know what the word but means, one T, but means that what I'm about to say stands in contrast to what I just said. It means that what, what I'm about to say, what's going to follow that word, stands in opposition to what I just said. And so we know how that word works. We use it all the time. And in fact, we use it only in that sense. There's really not another sense that we use the word but. So we might say something like, we've been really dry, but it rained this morning. And so what i just said is in contrast to what i said before. It turns the thought. It turns it into a different direction. It adds information that changes the perception entirely. I was really hungry, but i ate a big breakfast. That child has really been misbehaving very badly, but they seem to have a new perspective now. So Whenever we use that, we're speaking of some sort of a change or turn in thought, something that's going to contrast what was said before. So here comes this word, but, and it couldn't come at a better time, because as we took note the last two weeks, those three verses in in the first three verses of chapter two are some of the most difficult verses for us to absorb, particularly when the Spirit opens the eyes of your heart to show you that regardless how long you've known Jesus, regardless at what age you may have come to faith, regardless of just how openly, blatantly sinful you may or may not have been prior to that, when the Spirit opens your heart to see and to perceive, Paul is describing me. Whether or not it sounds like me, whether or not it feels like that was me or not, Paul's describing me. This is deadness in Christ. And so At the heels of those three verses, this word but couldn't come at a better time. But God. And so Paul begins here just to change the focus, to change the direction. He spent these three verses showing us the dark, ugly background of who we were prior. And now he comes in with this but God. But God being rich in mercy. And so here... Paul gives this descriptor of God, this descriptive participial phrase, being rich in mercy. So we know that the scriptures speak to us about a God who is merciful and the scriptures speak to us from cover to cover about a God who is identified as a God of mercy or a God who is merciful. For example, Exodus 34 and verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Deuteronomy 4 and 31 For the Lord your God is a merciful God. Psalm 78 and 38. Yet he being compassionate, atone for their iniquity. Or Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. We heard these verses just a few minutes ago. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Now that word Mercy is not there, but clearly that's teaching the concept of a merciful God. Or listen to Psalm 103 and verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So we know that God is described to us as this merciful God. Now in just a moment, Paul's going to use this phrase describing the love of God because of the great love which he had for us, or the great love that God has and shows for us. And then a moment later, Paul is going to bring in this concept of grace. So we got mercy, love, and grace, these three powerful descriptors of God. All of them really are describing the same heart in the same, or I should say in different senses. Love is what Paul's describing in all of these verses with all these words. And so when we hear the scriptures speak about the mercy of God, it's really speaking of the love of God as well as the grace of God. So, the, so mercy, we can think of mercy, the mercy of God as being God's love expressed toward a desperate person, toward a person who is out of options, toward a person who has brought upon themselves just condemnation or just consequences. So, mercy is God showing love in that scenario, in that situation, the situation of being destitute and helpless. Grace, we could think of grace as being the expression of God's love shown to those who are unworthy of help or unable to help themselves. That can be thought of as grace. We'll get there in just a few moments. But both of them are expressions of the love of God. And the mercy of God is something that is so familiar to us from cover to cover, that God is a merciful God. But then when we get to the New Testament, the Old Testament says this too, but when we get to the New Testament, particularly the concept of the mercy of God, is presented to us in the context of salvation. God's mercy is expressed more often than not in salvation. For example, look at Peter's testimony in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Or think of Paul's testimony to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 beginning from verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted in ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And it goes on from there. So the mercy of God in the Old Testament is connected to salvation, but the New Testament really takes the idea of God's mercy and it applies it in a concrete way to salvation. So God is a God of mercy. God delights in being merciful. God delights in showing love, specifically in the context of one who is destitute or helpless or has brought condemnation upon themselves and they are standing in, in righteous wrath. They are the righteous objects of wrath. And God shows mercy as an expression of his love in those situations. And so we are familiar with the mercy of God here, but Paul doesn't describe God as a merciful God. Not in this passage. He describes, he doesn't say God is merciful. He says being, being merciful. It's this descriptive phrase. It's it's, it's as though Paul is going beyond the acts of God and God's merciful tendencies and his merciful actions. And he's saying that God actually is mercy, that his heart is, is a heart of mercy. And so God's description of himself through Paul here is consistent with what we think of when, when God wants to describe his heart. We took some time not too long ago when we were studying through, uh, I think it was Philippians 4 where we were, and we were taking some time to investigate the character of God. And we saw that when God wants to tell us of his heart, what he wants us to know first and foremost is that his heart is a heart of compassion and grace and mercy. And so God is, is it's almost as though he's describing himself, but God being rich in mercy. Now, this word rich is a, is a word that Paul likes to use, particularly in the book of Ephesians. Paul uses this word rich quite a, book, quite a bit. And it's the standard word for wealth. But of course, Paul's taken this standard word and he's applying a spiritual meaning to this word rich or, or wealthy. And so he describes God as being rich in mercy. Now we've seen this word rich before in Paul's letter. We'll see it many times again. And what Paul is, is communicating here with this word rich is he's, he's speaking of a resource that God has that is supernatural in its abundance. It's infinite in its availability. It knows no limits. It knows no boundaries. It, it will never be exhausted. This is a resource of God that Paul wants to particularly say is without limitation, that God will never exhaust himself of mercy. God will never say, I have been merciful for 4,000 years with these people and I just don't have any more mercy left. So Paul wants to, to describe God's mercy as this deep, bottomless reservoir of this spiritual resource that will never know an end as it is directed toward the objects of God's love, which are his people. So Paul will use this word in other contexts to describe other attributes of God that he wants to, to describe as particularly large and particularly voluminous such as the wisdom of God in Romans, the richness of the wisdom of God or the richness of His kindness. We'll see in just a little bit. And so that's what he's saying here. He used the word a little bit earlier to describe the the richness of our hope, the blessed hope that's laid up for us. And when we talked about that passage, we talked about how Paul just wants us to see wealth wealth upon wealth upon wealth upon wealth upon wealth when we think of our hope that's set aside for us. So this being rich in mercy is this great expression that Paul wants to speak of, of God expressing, expressing his love in the sense of mercy. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he, with which he loved us. So because here is just simply, I'm not saying anything that's new information here. We know what because means. Because is a word that says, I'm about to tell you the cause What follows the word "because" is the cause of what you just said. I mean, this is just basic, plain English. You know, this is why we get so frustrated when we ask our kids, "Why did you do that?" and they say, "Because." You know, because because is supposed to be followed by the cause. So, so Paul says, "Because this is the cause, the cause of God showing this great mercy." the cause of God being merciful and making blind, dead sinners alive to God, what moved God to do that is, is love, is a great love, in fact. So God is not this disinterested deity that chooses a people for himself before the foundation of the world, chapter 1, verse 4 and then put in place the perfect means of atoning for the sins of His people and redeeming His people, and then prepares a home for His people, and then just sort of sits back and waits for His perfect plan to play itself out. God's not just sitting by disinterested in what's going on. God is moved by love toward those who are the objects of His mercy, toward those who are the the ones who are the recipients of this life in Christ. Because this is the cause of it. This is the reason behind it, says Paul, is because God's heart is full of love for His people. He doesn't just set in place this plan for His people to be redeemed and then think, well, I'm sure I'm looking to the day when when they're just going to glorify me for eternity. His heart is bound together with ours because He has made us the objects of His great love. Notice, of course, the word great. God shows His love for us in this way. Now, the love of God that Paul's speaking of here, he's speaking of God expressing His love. He just talked about God expressing His love through mercy. But here he's speaking of God expressing His love through the atonement. Because this is the great love that God is showing. And this great love is moving Him to make atonement for His people, to redeem His people, to send His Spirit, to bring conviction and conversion, to indwell His people, to seal His people. All of that is on top of the things that we read about in chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. And so the the reason behind this is God's great love for His people. The reason for the atonement is His great love, which by the way, The New Testament makes a wonderful connection between the love of God and the atoning work of the cross. In fact, the New Testament never mentions the love of God outside of the context of the atoning work of Christ. You may not have realized this, but you can put me to the test. Every time the New Testament speaks of God's love, it always speaks of His love in the context of Christ's work on the cross, or the atonement made by the cross, or in this instance, the work of the cross in our hearts. Never does the New Testament talk about the love of God as sort of this abstract, abstract idea. It always talks about God's love in the sense, in the context, that that love is being shown on the cross, by means of the cross. That is the love of God, as the New Testament shows us. Take for example Romans chapter five and verse eight. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Galatians two and verse twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live by faith—I live or the life I now live in the flesh—I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Or John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten son, or 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this is the New Testament's perception of the entirety of the love of God as it is expressed towards people. It's all encapsulated in this work on the cross that God has done for us. And this is what Paul's speaking of here, of course that we are made alive, and he's going to get in just a few minutes to our being raised with Christ and seated with Christ. All of this is in the context of the great love of God. So this great love of God is something that is very easy for us to make two misunderstandings about or two mistakes as we consider the love of God. The love of God, I think, can go awry in our hearts in two ways. One, is we can take it for granted. And I think that's very easy to do in the context of the church, particularly those who have been in the environment, the context of the church for many, many years. We've heard it. We've always heard, God loves you. God loves you. And this is so true. But there's a sense in which you've heard it so many times and for so long that it can lessen its impact on your soul or even cease to have an impact on your soul. And if you can hear in Paul's voice here, if you can hear, he's, he's at pains, I think, to describe the love of God in such a way that we don't or that we can't take this for granted. It's easy for the love of God to eventually become sort of smoothed out around the edges so that it doesn't impact our soul in such a forceful way. And by taking it for granted in such a way, it it has little to no impact upon our soul. So one way in which we can misunderstand the love of God is by not taking it seriously enough, by not comprehending fully what the love of God means to us, or what it at least should mean to us. Now, we can fight against that by teaching our souls of what the love of God is, And what an amazing thing that this is that God has given to us to make us the objects of his love. The great theologian called Karl Barth was famous for saying once, here's here's this theologian who has written such profound things about the character of God, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't agree with, but he's written profound things, some of the most profound thoughts about God was once asked, what is the most profound thing that you have ever learned about God? And he said, the most profound thing I've ever learned about God is just like I learned in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the most profound thought that we can have. That God would make us the object of His love is the most profound truth probably that the human mind can begin to grasp. That God has made you the object of His love. We know that the nature of love, if it's true love, if it's genuine love, if it's real love, love requires that the one that you love, their happiness and their joy are connected to yours. The two are parallel. We've talked about this before. That in order for love to be real and genuine, the object, the person who is the object of your love, their happiness has to be parallel with yours. For you to say that you love your spouse, but then their misery leaves you unaffected or their happiness leaves you unaffected, how can that be thought of as real love? Loving another necessarily means that my happiness and the object of my love, their happiness, are parallel to one another. And the same is true for God's love. God cannot make us the object of his love without necessarily also making his eternal happiness parallel to ours. If the eternal happiness of of the objects of God's love is not secured in the next age, how can it be said that that God is himself eternally happy or that he truly loved us? If we truly are loved by God, His eternal happiness and ours are connected with one another. When he chose to make us the people of his love, he chose to forever connect together his eternal joy and ours. That is a profound reality. To know that the maker of the universe has determined he will not be any more eternally happy than you. So, If we fail to grasp the greatness of the love of the Maker towards us, who would make us the object of His love, then we find ourselves taking taking this for granted and not having an impact upon our soul and upon our life. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at facebook nc. Truth that transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.